has been going on since in Indology has been around. Uh, the most uh, prominent uh, defender uh, of Indic tradition against Indology in the 19th century was uh, Dayananda Saraswati. Uh, at that time, he was uh, fighting uh, the misrepresentations of the Veda by Max Muller and others. And he has you know, written Rigveda, Bhashya Bhumika, and you know, many other works. Uh, a very illustrious uh, thinker, uh, a traditional scholar at that time. Uh, and after that, in the 20th century, also we have seen uh, several prominent uh, scholars, you know, defending. You know, we have seen Catherine Mayo's work, you know, which was defended by a large number of people. We have seen Aurobindo. We have seen even Gandhi could be considered, you know, a defender against, uh, uh, you know, Indologists. Um, but in more recent times, I would say uh, the work done by uh, Professor Adluri and Joydeep Bhakti has obtained a decisive victory is what I think. Um, so we will see why that is the case, you know, hopefully uh, in today's uh, uh, multiple sessions. I will just quickly uh, say a few words about uh, introducing uh, Professor Adluri, Bhakti and other panelists, and then we will get started. Uh, professor Adluri is a professor uh, in the philosophy department at Hunter College, New York. He is uh, author of over a dozen articles and essays on Mahabharata. Uh, his work mainly focuses on the reception of ancient thought, both Greek and Indian in modernity. He is the author of uh, Parmenides, Plato, and Mortal Philosophy, written from Transcendence. It was his uh, doctoral thesis which he published later. And of course, uh, his Magnum Opus, which he published along with uh, Joydeep Bakchi, uh, The Ne Science, A History of German Indology, and uh, the book Philology and Criticism, A Guide to Mahabharata Textual Criticism. Um, of course, he has also published a few other edited uh, volumes on Mahabharata, including Argument and Design, uh, The Unity of Mahabharata. Uh, Vishwa Adluri has PhDs. He has three PhDs. Uh, in one in philosophy from the New School for Social Research, NSSR, in New York. He has a PhD in Indology from Philips University in Marburg, Germany. And he has a PhD in Sanskrit lexicology from Deccan College, Pune. Uh, a few words about Professor Bhagji. Uh, he's uh, Professor Vishwadluri's student and a Berlin-based researcher and intellectual historian. He has a PhD from the New School of Social Research uh, in philosophy. He studied Indian and Western philosophy, completed a PhD in um, uh, German philosophy under uh, Professor Adluri's guidance. He is co-author of the Ne Science and the Philology and Criticism books. And he has also co-edited the volume Argument and Design, The Unity of Mahabharata. Uh, Professor Bakchi currently serves as a core doctoral faculty at the Hindu University of America. Professor Butler, Edward Butler, uh, has attended the New School for Social Research. We have three panelists today from the uh, New School of Social Research, first social research today. He has received a doctorate in philosophy from uh, the New School in 2004. His uh, dissertation, The Metaphysics of Polytheism in uh, Proclus, um, uh, you know, that was his uh, uh, you know, dissertation. Since then, he has published regularly in academic journals and his edited volumes chiefly on topics of Platonic philosophy and uh, polytheistic philosophy of uh, religion. 
he is the author of a forthcoming book, a very interesting book, you know, which uh, you know we are showcasing today. Professor Butler would uh, himself talk about and uh, read a few excerpts from his book. So, uh, a very interesting book uh, called uh, Polytheism and Indology: Lessons from the Nay Science. So, for people who cannot take up the task of reading the Nay Science in full, this is a very good way to get started understanding uh, Nay Science as a project. You know, before getting into the the main work itself. Uh, so this book talks about the broader implications of Professor Vishwa Adluri's and Joydeep Bakchi's groundbreaking intervention and Indology. We also have uh, Gautam, Gautam Chikarmane today as a panelist. He is the uh, vice president at uh, Observer Research Foundation, ORF. His area of research is uh, Indian and international economic policy. He's also a director at CARE India. Uh, Gautam Chikarmane has great interest in Mahabharata and he has written several articles in Mahabharata. I met him uh, at uh, several workshops, uh, you know, Indic Academy has conducted on Mahabharata with uh, uh, Professor Vishwa Adluri. He is a, a constant presence at any of the Mah Professor Vishwa Adluri's events. Uh, he himself is a, an author. He has written uh, four books um, and um, uh, uh, and he has, he's also um, learns uh, Drupad from Ustad F. Wasifuddin Dagar and lives in New Delhi and Pondicherry. So this is a, a brief about the panelists uh, today. I'd now uh, you know, request uh, uh, Isha and Trisha to uh, start the session today uh, with a few slokas. Isha? Trisha, please. Narayanam Namaskritya Naram Chaivanarotamam Devim Saraswatim Vyasam Tato Jayamudirayet Bharatam Shunoyan Nityam Bharatam Parikirtayet Bharatam Bhavaneyasya Tasya Hastagato Jaya Bharatam Paramam Punyam Bharate Vivida Katha Bharatam Sevyate Devaihi Bharatam Paramam Padam Bharatam Sarvashastranam Uttamam Bharatarshava Bharatat Prapyate Moksha Thank you. I request Professor Vishwa Adluri to start the event. Uh, Professor, I think, uh, yeah, you need to unmute yourself. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we can't uh, hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. 
Thank you, Hari uh, Kiran. Thank you, uh, Indic Academy, for all your efforts to hold this. It is not just this event. For years now, you, uh, you, Srinivas, have been supporting me, uh, and uh, Gautam has been cheering me on. Um, I'm very happy to be here. Um, I hope that uh, as time goes by, I see newer and newer faces and younger and younger scholars doing this work, uh, which is uh, ultimately the goal of every academy, uh, Indic Academy notwithstanding. I've also been very fortunate to be offering courses and teaching as a full-time professor uh, at uh, of the core doctoral faculty, along with the very illustrious Joy Bhatji at the Hindu University of America. Uh, we have extraordinary students there, and they're forcing me to read the Mahabharata much more rigorously and, uh, than in any other institution. So uh, with these remarks, I would like to offer special thanks to my friend, uh, Ed Butler, who has always been there. He's my go-to person to knock ideas on. And, uh, you know, he was the only person who would talk to a very weird uh, Vishwa at the new school at that time. Uh, and, uh, of course, words cannot express uh, Joydeep Bhakti, uh, who, I, who was introduced here as my student. He, he's also my colleague, but in many ways, he's also exceeded me. And I uh, look forward to reading every little bit, even if he writes a little note to himself in an email and sends it to me. Uh, it makes my day to uh, read uh, what he has written. Surely uh, my life is uh, fulfilled because I've had extraordinary teachers. I've had uh, extraordinary colleagues and I have joy as my extraordinary student. Um, with these words, you please continue. Thank you. I welcome you all. Thank you, uh, Vishwa. I think, uh, uh, Joydeep, uh, maybe we should uh, get started with the first session. I think in the first session, we have uh, uh, Professor Vishwa Adluri um, and um, is it Ed Butler? Um, on yes. the, yeah. Yeah. Um, before we go into the first session, uh, I just want to, you know, um, say a few words. This is not long and it is not, um, the plan for today is not to engage in a kind of, uh, you know, uh, presentation of a person, but of an idea and a body of work. And we are all here conjoined with that common interest in an intellectual project. And uh, my, my only recollection of the reminiscence I want to share is that I met Vishwa a very, very long time ago at the new school. And I saw him around in a few classes and, uh, you know, he had been Raina Shurman's student. Obviously, that was the new school of old. The level of reading and things they did um, was just staggering. Um, there's this story they tell about Gadamer, where apparently after he met Heidegger, he despaired of ever being a philosopher and he thought he should quit and do something else. And obviously he didn't. And then he continued and was Heidegger's student. And you know, is himself now a philosopher of some recognition. And in fact, in my opinion, he has a better grasp of the history of philosophy than, Vish, uh, than Heidegger. 
Um, you see how I'm mixing up the two. And I had something of a similar experience. So it's, uh, we will at the end sort of go over some biographic things, affiliations, influences, but I just wanted to start off with that recollection that um, when I met Vishwa, it was almost a sign to me to stop because I realized I could never match that level of philosophical reading inside brilliance. And, um, you know, I just decided I would be a aid and an asset and a supporter because I realized here was an intellectual project that was greater than my personal, you know, philosophical interests and that it was worth doing that. When I was preparing for this webinar, I also looked at a lot of the old writings and things that haven't been published. So what you have seen, the three or four books are the tip of the iceberg. And it was a humbling and saddening experience for me because I saw how much work there is on the Greeks, how much work on the pre-Socratics, papers on Oedipus, papers on Sophocles and Socrates and Homer and so on that never saw the light of day because we had to set all of that aside and, you know, pick up this battle with Indology. So not just at the personal level of, you know, time or money or effort, but also at an intellectual level, enormous sacrifices were made to pose this counter to Indology. But I think it was important. I think it, this is one of the largest intellectual traditions of the world. It is certainly the largest surviving tradition of the ancient world that we have. And to, you know, restore it to its place and to engage in a dialogue, not a monologue, not a diatribe against it, I think is, is a larger project we're all proud to be part of. Thank you. So with that, I'm going to hand over to Ed and Vishwa and they're going to, Ed has a sort of description and a set of questions for Vishwa in the first session. Uh, thank you, Joy. Uh, so we have the first session, which is the ancient uh, Greek uh, uh, beginnings. Uh, so Professor Ed Butler and uh, we'll have a conversation with uh, Vishwa uh, and we will gain some insight into Vishwa Glory's thought uh, on ancient Greeks. Professor Ed Butler, thank you. Thank you. Um, without, uh, without being repetitive of uh, the things that Joydeep just said, um, you know, I, I'd just like to briefly uh, uh, reminisce myself uh you know uh i i met i met vishwa i think it was probably somewhere around 1996 um at the new school and um we immediately hit it off um uh, both of us being um uncharacteristically for that institution interested in ancient thought and both of us being interested in what I'm sure our fellow students at the new school thought of as weird religion. Um, but um, I was immediately struck uh, in a very profound way by Vishwa's extraordinary insight and philosophical acumen. And the profundity of my respect for his work has only grown over the years that I've known him and that I've been privileged to work together with him on a number of projects. Um, and I, I think that, you know, uh, looking back at um, some of his earlier works, um, which are in the area of ancient Greek philosophy, which is my own area of specialization, uh, I agree with Joy that 
it's important to bring out some of the philosophical foundations that were laid there and the way in which that's been carried forward as a single project and continues to inform the work that he does today. And so um, with that, just a few preliminary remarks. Um, Vishwa Adluri's first published works were concerned with ancient Greek philosophy. And these works displayed a philosophical orientation that has grounded his subsequent work in important ways, some of which I would like to briefly discuss here. Vishwa's earliest works are already marked by an incisive critique of the preconceptions current in the academic approach to their topics, a critique which he has subsequently carried with powerful effect into the field of Indology. Vishwa's earliest works allow us to appreciate the deep roots of this critical attitude in his concern for the relationship between philosophy and the experience of the divine. Vishwa is concerned to clear the obstacles that academic readings have placed in the way of our recognition of the experience of philosophical salvation, a salvation that is, which is peculiar to the project of philosophical inquiry, and which is at once closely parallel to cultic salvation, but also irreducible to it. As Vishwa puts it in one of his first published papers, quote, at the level of salvation, Platonic philosophy addresses the reader in his singularization to come, that is to say, in his death. To the degree that we share this vital existential concern, the philosophers of ancient Greece become our contemporaries. More urgently, though, than that, these philosophers can lead us to the very threshold of initiation and theophany. It is this, in turn, which lends urgency to the effort to free tradition in its salvific dimension from the oblivion of historicism. One cannot at once be an initiate and a historicist with respect to a salvific tradition. Let us be clear that historical awareness is different from reductive historicism. Hermeneutical historical awareness joins us with a tradition, making, awake to us, making us awake to its context and its struggles, while historicist reductionism cuts us off from it placing us forcibly in its own temporality, one which is incompatible with our individuation and hence with our salvation. This individuating character of mortality is dealt with in much more detail in Parmenides, Plato, and Mortal Philosophy, Return from Transcendence, published in 2011, but based on Vishwa's doctoral dissertation from the New School for Social Research. Here, he argues that mortal life must be understood from out of its own mortal span and not reduced either to a particular within the horizon of a history or transformed into information, immortal in the sense of being storable, retrievable, and controllable. Mortal singularity thus places limits both upon the reduction to an historical narrative, such as modernity's linear narrative, of which Vishwa has been critical in many subsequent works, as well as upon the technological alienation and dismemberment of the person, which is strikingly performed in today's social media. There is an experience thus in Vishwa's work, which to me is expressive of the situation of many philosophers of our generation, is in mine, I mean, who are paradoxically the inheritors of a tradition of modern Western thought, which is in its very nature disruptive of tradition as such. For many of us, this problematic inheritance took the form 
of a commitment to engaging with broader, deeper, and older traditions and discovering for ourselves, often in rather painful fashion, how to make them part of our own living process, a pilgrimage as such, from historicism to initiation. And so now, following on from these points, I'd like to pose a question or maybe a few interrelated questions concerning the relationship between philosophical salvation and salvation from other cultic sources. So in your book on Parmenides and in subsequent works on Plato, you speak of a gulf separating being and coming to be. You illustrate this quite vividly in your reading of Parmenides' poem, in which you argue that the goddess's logos, quote, negates the youth's journey and his individuality, because from her divine viewpoint, the way to her and the way back are equivalent. Similarly, but from a slightly different angle, I think, you say in a later piece on Plato, of Plato having instituted relative to Homer as the poet of ceaseless coming to be, quote, a new kind of journey, linear rather than cyclical, an ascent rather than a nautical voyage, a true being at home rather than a homecoming, and a rational self-identification with the noetic part of the soul rather than being driven by the thematic soul. Now, as a fellow specialist, I'm interested in what sort of different value the thumos, the passionate part of the soul, has in Plato as distinct from its role in Parmenides, where you see the thumos as the source of concrete individuality or the mortal being. But this might be a little technical for some of our listeners to appreciate. So I'd like to pose another question and you can take up the former issue to whatever degree you like. This concerns the way in which this opposition between being and becoming, the gulf you speak of, and the separation it entails between the lives of gods and of mortals plays out in light of your more recent writings on bhakti. In your article, Plotinus and the Orient, in particular, you speak about bhakti as representing the soteriological way up from the many to the one, corresponding to the cosmogonic way down from the one to the many. You speak of this complementarity in terms of pravritti and nivritti dharmas, and it is also present in later Platonic thought as prohodos and epistrophe, the ontological orientations of procession and turning back or conversion, respectively. Does bhakti then truly bridge the gulf between being and becoming? Does bhakti make the relationship between the god and the mortal genuinely reciprocal? Does it create a united plane of experience in which gods and mortals are truly together with one another? And in this light, what is the special task of philosophy insofar as it is tasked, you say in another piece, with positing the ultimate reference? What belongs to philosophy alone? And what is the philosopher's bhakti? You have to unmute a good summary of my work, if not, uh, uh, I'm just surprised that you posed it as a question. I mean, <laughs> um, let me just begin with my own journey. When I went to the new school and I wanted to start studying philosophy, 
uh, there was so much to study and there were so many things to study and so many perspectives. I got a little lost. And uh, one day my professor, Rainer Sharman, took me to his office and told me, uh, you, only that which you experience is the true philosophy. So you focus on what you experience. Um, it took me a while just to understand what experience even means. Does it mean simply experiencing the world? And it came to the point that I had lost my mother and there was deep grief about death. I was in medical school and I left medical school because um, I just felt that the, the positive sciences did not give an answer of who my mother was and what this love is that I just do not want another person uh, to play a role in my life that my mother did or that she was irreplaceable. Um, and then uh, as I was thinking about her, I remember very clearly I had a flashback. Uh, it was Ganesh Chaturthi when I was a little kid and there was a little icon of Ganesh who, who was being worshipped. Um, you know, he had big ears and, uh, you know, a lot of moxie. You know, some of those Ganesh icons we get, they have a lot of moxie. So he was sitting there uh, in his, and we had put, you know, uh, greens and so on. And he was sitting there with his uh, feet up um, with a little mouse. And my mother told me, go uh, salute him and say goodbye because he's leaving. And I was amazed. I just went in, I, I bowed down and I thought, He's going away. So I, I, I was very sad and I told my mother I'm very sad about it. And my mother said, don't be silly. He'll be back next year. And then <clears throat> I went back and looked at him and I thought, but it won't be this icon. There'll be some different icon. It won't be this icon. So the iconicity that of this particular thing, this particular, is lost in philosophy. When we talk about beings in general, or when we say tree, we mean any tree. When we mean uh, uh, people, we mean any people. And it goes beyond every kind of identity and every kind of classification. So I wanted to articulate that truth of what does it mean to be a singular like that? It did not help that Rainer Sherman, whom I was very fond of, was also dying. I was also uh, very ill and was going to die. So this notion of death uh, is central. I had read Plato. Plato says philosophy is preparation for death. So uh, in, in the Western philosophical paradigm, I found that very little in philosophy had anything to do with death. And that experience of not my death, but the death of those I love, or at least in the case of Ganesha, the icon that will go away and be submerged in water. Um, and so that's where my journey started. And I needed 
two things. So when I read Parmenides, uh, it was clear to me that, that there is this thing called permanent being or unchanging being. Not, let's not call it permanent. Unchanging being, which seemed to me, uh, which is in the case of Plato, it is the true, the good, and the beautiful. Uh, in the case of uh, Hinduism, it is Satchitananda Brahman. In the case of Plato, uh, the, the, the orientation towards that is Dikayosune, or the good to which Dikayosune, or justice, leads. In Hinduism, it's Dharma, same thing. Uh, so I had all these things in my mind, but I just didn't, did not know how to put it. So in my Parmenides book, uh, I just did not know how to put being and beings together, except that the goddess herself had given two separate speeches, one on being and one on becoming, and they were just two speeches. So I felt at that time, and I've changed since, uh, that there is an inseparable gulf between the two. I did, but that gulf was in my head. I didn't know how to bring those two together. It did not occur to me, although I played uh, or I, I made a big deal about how we should read it in a literary way, the idea of the magic of literature that would put uh, singular beings like Socrates together with uh, philosophical abstract thoughts uh, did maybe it occurred to me maybe it didn't in this in the chapter on singularities and Socrates and Phaedrus I think I went in that direction all right I think you'll be back in um, a few seconds Ed are you still there yeah so yeah it seems like it seems like his signal dropped yeah, so let's uh, keep keep the thing between you and me. I wanted to say that I, I mean, I obviously oh, back. Okay, he's back. back. Okay. Path uh, was what Heidegger had blocked. Uh, so, if you I, could, uh, if you could go back a little bit, uh, your signal dropped out, and we 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 missed about a minute. Uh, At the end of my Parmenides discussion, in my conclusion there it shows that I had come to two places. One is that the appreciation of, or the holiness of the literary form itself. And I had come to initiation, uh, that philosophy ought to be an initiation. It just cannot be something I, I just uh, read uh, with detachment because then death is not included. Singularity is not included. I did not know how to put those together at that time. When I came to the Mahabharata, it, it was quite clear because there are very sophisticated categories in the Mahabharata, unlike it, the work done in Parmenides and Homer and Plato that you brought up. There is a meditation on, uh, on the literary form itself as a form of revelation. So there are the four Vedas, but the Mahabharata is the fifth Veda. And, uh, and I could not bridge that gulf between being and beings. Uh, but in the case of uh, this notion of avatara, Krishna seemed to have uh, crossed that gulf very easily. So in the, in the way 
being itself is present in this world, which is also populated by gods everywhere. I was uh, I was uh, able to think this through. So my first dissertation, second dissertation, was precisely an inquiry into this question: How does one read the Mahabharata as if one is being initiated? So the first portion of my Mahabharata uh, uh, work uh, was to uh, read the very few chat from the beginning. And I found something remarkable that all the crazy stories in the Adi Parvan are actually meant to disorient and reorient you uh, into uh, the story and how to interpret and read that story. So the text itself was already aware of and performing the fusion of the initiatory as well as the philosophical and the salvific dimensions of thinking. Uh, in a very wonderful way. This was the PhD uh, thesis I wrote and I submitted at Marburg. Uh, the Marburg people said, what the hell is this? You're religious, you're Indian, you don't know how to think. <laughs> and so uh, all the rest is history, as they say. Did I miss any specific, as for different aspects of worship, yeah, Krishna says, uh, you can worship uh, any god you please. But being itself is present in every worship, which I think you've got from Patricia Kurd or, or so. You have a specific notion on that, and that will work, Ed, in this yeah. uh, scenario. Yeah. So Krishna says, no matter whom you worship, I strengthen that, that bhakti. Uh, so the linear, now circular linear, uh, I keep living in this experiential world. Uh, my soul will transmigrate ethically, uh, but uh, there is a notion of liberation and moksha, which is only slightly present, I think, in Plato. For example, in the myth of Ur, Ur is not supposed to participate in anything, drinking from the waters of... Uh, uh, of unheedfulness and so on, but it's there. But in Mahabharata and especially the Bhagavad Gita, it is clearly worked out. And uh, so there is this notion of uh, going beyond the circular path to a linear path. That linear path is different from the historical linear path of Judeo-Christianity where it begins with creation and for everybody and ends with an apocalypse for everybody. Uh, here, every individual is on a journey. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things that you bring out here that I really, uh, really resonates with me is just how incomplete our appreciation of Greek philosophy often is. If, we're not able to supplement it either from looking at other traditions like Hinduism uh, in your journey um, or diverse theological traditions in my experience, um, you know, even just an attentiveness to ancient Greek religious experience 
and to the way in which Hellenic polytheism infuses Plato's thought, which I think um, not only is it, of course, played down to virtually to the point of suppression in academic readings of ancient Greek thought, but it's, it's subtle enough in many ways just in, in Plato's own works you know, that we can read them without uh, uh, really marking the significance of uh, these stray moments where uh, a character in a dialogue says, by Zeus, or there's a reference to, oh, here we are meeting on the day of this festival. Um, you know, and uh, we're taught in uh, the academic reading of these texts to take these references very lightly. And yet in antiquity, there was an understanding that this was actually a constant undercurrent of theological reference uh, that ran throughout Plato's works and that provides this vital counterpoint in many instances to what's said explicitly. And so a person has to learn to practice a particular kind of reading. Um, and I think that that was something that, you know, in your work on Greek philosophy, you're already very sensitive to, and I think prepared you then um, to really uh, 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 engage in a fully philosophical way with other texts that you then encountered, um, where the kind of reference to theophany and to initiation and to salvation is much more explicit and much more direct. So, uh, so Christianity provides a kind of a, an agenda, right? Philosophy is not the way to salvation already. So, and I'm a philosopher, so Christianity just loses me there at the get-go. Uh, and Christianity, however, to be very fair, Christianity also preserved the texts of the ancient world, uh, Greek texts and so on. And it preserved them, uh, some say well, some say not so well. Uh, and I think uh, because Christianity had this sort of rara moment in throughout history. Uh, critical scholarship today will say that that appropriation was not uh, not innocent and scholarly uh, alone. Um, I would like to share a book I just read, uh, which is called "The Darkening Age: The Christian Destruction of the Classical World." It's written by Kathleen Nixie. And uh, she is uh, a, a fantastic writer. Uh, she writes only in a hundred and some pages, uh, you know, without the footnotes I get into uh, or Joy gets into. Uh, she has a very beautiful, popular form of writing. So I thought when I got on the scene that I was only furthering the Western interest in the roots of the West of Western thought in Plato by restoring to Plato those things that were edited out by uh, 
the tradition, the Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian Christian tradition. And I thought, here is Mahabharata, an ancient text that has survived to this day, and magnificently so, just the transmission history of Mahabharata, I mean, scribes having to copy, I mean, it's a very big text. And now we know that it is not even a chaotic text or uh, a, a, you know, a text in free form. So that kind of magnificent intellectual experiment, I thought, would at least provide a control system by which we can revisit and study Plato. Um, unfortunately, I'm still in that, like, we, we have <laughs> that the West, that there are methods and paradigms outside uh, Western, the Western canon. Uh, just to convince people of that is difficult. And there are various systematic uh, uh, things against it because Christianity is taken uh, as the paradigm on which all other religions are supposed to be uh, explained. Um, apparently, there is such a thing as religion in the singular, and uh, all religions have to come to the table, uh, sort of purging themselves of everything. My experience of the Enlightenment table, the Marxist table, has been as follows, that everybody's secular table, everybody's invited for dinner. Right? The Muslims can come, the Jews can come, the Hindus can come, but the but there's only one item on the menu, and that would be bratwurst. Now, <laughs> now of course, bratwurst is made from uh, a, 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 a mixture of pork and beef meat. Uh, so, of course, the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim will not eat that. So the minute they don't eat that, they reveal themselves as not fit for that paradigm. It's a crazy example, but it's an example. So you're right. In Plato, there are so many things. For example, the whole Republic is read as the monument to political philosophy without ever mentioning that it is, that Socrates is there to, to pray at the, at the, temple and the ceremony and the festival of a foreign goddess from Thrace, Venice. Uh, and, and Plato just points those things, you know. And uh, the, just last week, I was looking at the syllabus of Phaedo from a university in California, and the professor had said, please don't read the last portion of the, uh, Phaedo. Uh, because Plato involves himself in a very bizarre description of the underworld, which is just not interesting. That's where Plato stops being a philosopher. So um, you're absolutely right. I mean, and I'm hoping that with the Mahabharata studies, we can question certain prejudices in the bottom of the humanities so that even Western humanities can profit from from that. The blind spots, as they say, uh, when you look at just the mirror, uh, rear view mirror, there's a blind spot. And I think looking at the Eastern tradition, Mahabharata is about as important as that 
having to look over your shoulder to uh, change lanes. Can, can yes, I, well, I, oh, I was, I was just going to say briefly, Ed, Ed, go ahead. I, I'll come back with my question. It, it's, uh, you know, uh, first we, of course, we lack so much of the infrastructure for understanding Plato because we may have Homer, but you know, we have virtually nothing in the way of liturgical writings from ancient Greece. Uh, texts like the Orphic scriptures, which were very widely distributed in antiquity, survive for us only in fragments, um, you know, because the preservation of the, the ancient Greek texts by Christians was of course highly selective. Um, but another thing that we see in Plato um, is the importance that he ascribes to um, the, 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 um, the thought of other peoples, um, the respectful way in which he approaches um, ancient Egypt, for instance, the reverent way often that he speaks of it also uh, in also in Homer, yeah, also in yeah. Homer, you know, you have the Zeus going off to have have his meals with the Ethiopians and stuff, whoever they are, and the land. Right, uh, yeah, Poseidon actually. Poseidon, and the, uh, who, who's every, the one? Every every year traveling to Ethiopia, um, and that is also the know, land I mean, of the Lotus Eaters. I think it was a very had a, connected world in antiquity. Yeah. yeah, I think Joy had a point, and then you yes. can, yeah, go ahead, Joy. Um, I just want you know one of the things that has struck me throughout when I read your work, when I read Ed's work, and I, I think of Ed as also one of the people who has taught me tremendous amounts. I remember this conversation the first time you'd come to Vicious House, and you were seated on the yellow couch. And I sort of asked you, I know you're a worship of the Hellenic gods, but to my knowledge, what we have preserved is such a small amount compared to Hinduism, where there's actually a sort of tradition and we know how to perform the rituals and so on. Um, and here the tradition has been broken down. And so how, how, you know, what are your sources? And you answered in the most staggering way possible. It just blew my mind and I don't think you intended to. But you said, you know, those whom the gods call to their service, they're always present and they institute their worship. And I was making this error as someone who was very critical of historicism, who had read a lot about historicism and the historic reduction that is done that, you know, everything is a human creation. All worship is just anthropocentric. It's, it's just instituted by humans as social control. And we can only understand it in political terms. And I've been critical of that. And yet historicism so sort of dominates our understanding that to me, without a historical mediation, it wasn't possible. And so I realized that even as someone who has been critiquing historicism, there are levels of deconstruction or sort of levels of removal that have to be done before we understand the immediate presence of divinity and to define it in the simplest way possible that we are not living in a world made up of humans alone. Significations are not purely human significations. And that is what, you know, 
two millennia of Christianity have effectively done is they have gone to other traditions and said, um, yesterday I was working on Paul Harker, for example, and he has this article that it's not the church in India, it's the one before that in the volume, where he says, we have to distinguish between true theology, dogmatic theology, which is what St. Paul has. And then obviously there's an anthropological side of religion. Yeah, the ancient Greeks were religious. They had some noble feelings and some of that can be reused. They were obviously searching for the truth, but revelation was not given to them. And that kind of, you know, anthropologizing, historicizing of other people's traditions and saying, well, when you bow down to, let's say, Shiva or Vishnu, you're obviously searching for something, but that's your positive, that's your creation, and you have not, you know. And your work has consistently shown me this notion of the who, that the God is a person, and the God is not a positive, a what that I posit, has been very, very important for me. And uh, I think Hinduism still suffers under that need to give a what account, you know. Um, I, I see this on the internet many times. One example is to say that we have many gods, but we all worship the one true God. This is not a statement of Hinduism that a traditional Hindu would recognize. This is, this is Hinduism in dialogue with Christianity, which has accused it of polytheism or idolatry and is trying to, you know, twist itself into the Cinderella slipper and say, I'm, I'm, I'm beautiful. Um, so I, I want to, I so, see so, so, Hindu, so that's why I've, 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 I'm more interested in the genealogy, conceptual genealogy of even terms such as monotheism and polytheism, right? No, no worshiper of Ganesha thinks himself as I am a polytheist or I am a monotheist, nor does, a, nor does anyone in Hinduism worship any god without the concept of, concept of Brahman included uh, in that concept. So the, the, I just feel that the conceptual vocabulary, which, which has been going on for 1,500 years in Europe, has run its course and has become so problematic that in Europe itself, we have declared that the Judeo-Christian God is dead. This is Nietzsche writing in 1908, towards the end of the 19th century. So, uh, so when that has happened, uh, why not rethink all our terms and all our concepts and what better way than, than to uh, dialogue with Hinduism, which is a different paradigm from the paradigm of Judeo-Christianity and Islam, uh, which are hermeneutics on of the same book. And this will get Europe, this is not just an Indian project, Europe itself can appreciate its roots and its origins in the, uh, in the Greeks and in the Greek religion and Greek philosophy through that by sort of dumping these uh, these so many conceptual coins that have become uh, erased. I mean, they've been so overused that, you know, these words don't have any semantic value anymore. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, uh, if there's anything and I, I'd hesitate to say that there's anything providential in so much 
destruction of ancient heritage, which has occurred in the West and in um, other cultures through the actions of the West. But I will say this, that it is imposed upon those of us like myself who have returned to the worship of the gods. Um, the necessity, uh, as Joydeep was saying, of finding ways to engage with the living persons of the gods, uh, because we don't have a continuous tradition. Our traditions, whatever gods were called to, uh, in, in so many cases, the tradition has been sundered. Uh, and so we're thrown back upon the attempt to inhabit the same space somehow with the gods, to bring ourselves into contact with their living presence. And it provides a particular perspective because one doesn't have the infrastructure of ritual practice meticulously handed down, which is a treasure and an incalculable and inestimable gift that India possesses. Um, a more intact and continuous tradition than perhaps anywhere else in the world. I, I think. I think probably than anywhere else in the world. But one thing that it uh, uh, can. If I, may do, jump, I if I may jump in for one second, um, I've been talking to uh, people that come up and ask me about Hinduism, and many of them are Hindu. Uh, almost all the questions that Hindus have about Hinduism are the questions Westerners created out of their system. And in a way, uh, Christianity's uh, tragedy is that it won. It won so unequivocally in the West that absent all dialogue, uh, it fell prey to secularism and to the phenomenon of death of God. So if Christianity itself has to survive, it needs uh, a dialogue with Hinduism, especially on terms that are not part of its own vocabulary, because those have been exhausted, right? So suppose I'm very clever, and I defeat everybody in the room, and they've all left, <laughs> and I'm sitting by myself, and I can't even talk to myself. Somebody comes in, uh, I'm supposed to now not do the same thing I did before as to outwit them and get them out of the room, I should learn a new humility, a new language, and, uh, and begin uh, answering questions. Is Christianity monistic or dualistic? Simple question. Simple question. And the miracle in the Trinity, am I the fourth? Is the individual soul the fourth entity? Is faith disconnected from reason or not? Is my soul already predestined to be saved or is it not? Do I believe in a soul or is it just the resurrection of the body? 
Do I believe in the authority of the Catholic Church or don't I? You know, when, when all these questions are not answered and a Christian enters with a camera, enters into a dialogue with a Hindu and says, do you really think a big Ganesha can ride on a little mouse? It, it just, it, we are not at the level of science. We are not at the level of even tourism because a tourist would take a very good picture of that. 